This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. So when you look at the color of the oak, you really have no idea how it's been toasted and what kind of flavor profile you're going to get out of that. You know, you take the temperature up and down or, or apply it in a different way. For example, you could do a convection oven, you could do a, f- a fire toast, you can do infrared, um, and they're all going to create different flavors. This week on the show, we take a deep dive into oak barrels. You'll hear about the properties of oak, the different types, and all about the complexities of seasoning and toast. My name is Amy LeHue. I'm the sales manager for Oak Solutions Group, um, which is a subsidiary of Independent Stave Company. My name is Andrew Webrink, and I am director of spirits research for Independent Stave Company. My name is Noah Steingraber, and I am the national and international salesman for Kentucky Bourbon Barrel, a used barrel cooperage in Louisville, Kentucky, and also a subsidiary of Independent Stave. Why is oak such a popular material for barrels? Oak is a popular uh, type of wood for barrels because it's liquid tight. Um, It's full of tannin, which also adds to the flavor. It's very strong. It's um, resistant to to any kind of decay or fungal and insect attack. Um, And that's partly because of the tannins that are intrinsic in oak. And so it makes it um, a lot of qualities that that add to what we're looking for in a barrel. Talk about how some of the various constituents of oak interact with barrel-aged beer and, or spirits. So if you look at the components of oak, you're looking mainly at cellulose, which is about 45% of of the makeup of that tree. And that really does very little for flavor. It's mostly there um, 
to transport extractives and kind of serves as the skeleton of the tree, the backbone, if you will. The flavor comes from the hemicellulose, which is around between 20 and 25% um, of the constituents. And hemicellulose is wood sugar. And if you think of wood sugar, think of, you know, if you put sugar in a pan and added heat to it, you would create, John, what is it? Caramel. Good, you did it. (laughs) So that's what we're doing is when we add heat and start toasting that hemicellulose, that wood sugar, we're breaking it down into different caramels. And so so those are the flavors that we're adding and and also colors um, to whatever beverage you're putting it on, in this case, beer. Um, Then another component is lignin, and it's approximately 25%. Um, It also helps with the color, but basically when we break that lignin down, we create vanillin, which gives you your vanilla-like flavor profile. And so if you think about vanilla and caramel, those are two of the most complex flavors Uh, on earth as far as the human palate can discern. And it is represented by uh, the most popular beverage on earth, Coca-Cola, which is a combination of vanilla and caramel. And so it's fun for us to get to play with different levels of those two very complex flavors uh, to create different different flavors from the oak. And so the way we manipulate it with heat is, is and the transformation of those two main things uh, gives us the majority of the flavor. There's also um, an oak tannin structure um, and that adds some, some mouthfeel, some complexity. Um, a lot of times uh, it's, uh, it's more weight on the palate so much than it is a flavor. Um, and then, on the wine side, it can be used for color stability. Um, on the beer side, it, it's more adding complexity and, and texture to and weight to the palate. I saw that uh, tannins can actually also help remove off notes as well. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and that's that's something that is more prevalent on the wine side. Okay, where. You can have a vegetal wine uh, and the tannin will come in and kind of pull out those those vegetative characteristics. Uh, Andrew, can you speak more to the beer side and specifically that tannin? Not necessarily the beer side, but I mean, you know, tannin, it does have removal off notes. I mean, some of the byproducts, you know, you're going to get are the, the elastic acid and the gallic acids. And, you know, by themselves, they do not necessarily have, you know, any kind of flavor input or any kind of flavor alteration to, you know, whatever's coming in contact with it. But through the combination of other compounds, those two acids can help to, you know, essentially mask other components through their combination with them um, is kind of the way that works. Um, and then I also kind of want to go back to the lignin there and, you know, kind of just expand on that a little bit more. You know, if we look at like cellulose and hemicellulose for the most part, I mean, you know, kind of like polysaccharides, right? It's just a bunch of, you know, cellulose is a bunch of glucose molecules, um, you know, all chained together. Hemicellulose has a bunch of different sugar molecules all chained together. Lignin, you know, is this humongous branch polymer. So not only does it give you vanillin, but it also goes to like a wide range of flavors, right? So, you know, if you look at the lignin degradation chain, you're going to start, you know, vanillin, you're going to get into the eugenols, um, you know, which are kind of your clove, baking spices, that kind of stuff. You degrade it even further. Um, you get down into kind of some smokier, uh, you know, spicier components. So, um, you know, lignin is uh, it's, it's a source for a lot of different flavor categories. 
what are the most common or maybe most important flavor contributions from oak? And is that the same for beer as it is for spirits or different? Uh, I'll speak to the, the beer side. I know that the flavor profiles from the uh, vanillin or the vanilla uh, definitely are what the brewers are kind of seeking, especially when they're barrel aging uh, a lot of their beers. So to complement all those, you know, those chocolatey stouts, the porters and whatnot, they like to have that. They like the more vanilla forward profile. So I know that's one of the things that people are always looking for as far as brewers go. The second one would be, uh, uh, where is it? Uh, Andrew, you'll have to correct me. The cislactone, I believe, is the coconut profile. Uh, yes, that is correct. So, yeah, and then the cislactone, you know, a lot of brewers are looking for that coconut profile and that character as well. What's the difference between American and French oak? There are several differences. One of the main ones is that French oak has about 10% tannin by weight, whereas American oak has a maximum of 2% tannin by weight. Uh, so so that's going to have a different uh, effect f- from, from coloring. Uh, tannins add more color and darkness. Um, French oak is going to have more of those antioxidants. It's going to have a heavier mouthfeel. Uh, American oak has a different uh, cis-lactone ratio. It's got a cis-lactone ratio of 10 to 1, where French oak has a cis-lactone ratio of 2 to 1. And what that means from a flavor profile is that you're going to have a lot more of those coconut and celery compounds in it. Um, Another different difference is that American oak is just intrinsically a little more intense and you, you can tend to get a few more woody notes, uh, particularly if you're toasting for a short time or at a, at a low temperature. Um, and if you increase that time and temperature, you get more smoke notes. Um, so it's just there's just a little more intensity. Uh, as far as density, French oak is a lot less dense than American oak. Um, so anything we do, like if we, for example, we have two different high vanilla toasts, one is American oak and one is French oak. And those recipes are, are different, uh, to try and extract the same flavor, but a different mouthfeel because of the tannins. Um, but those, those recipes have to be completely different because of the density. So French oak actually weighs less. And, and French oak is handled differently than American oak, right? Yes, it is. So American oak, when it is when it's milled, when it, when it goes through the mill, it's quarter sawn, and that process is fairly economical. Um, so that's why typically American oak costs quite a bit less. French oak, um, in order to be liquid tight. Now, again, on the alternative side, this is not accurate because we don't we don't quarter split by hand, and we're not worried about liquid integrity. Uh, on on oak alternatives, but with a barrel we are, and French oak has to be split by hand uh, because every stave has to be in line with the radial rays uh, to keep from leaking. And that's I mentioned tyloses earlier. Uh, American oak has a lot more tyloses, and that helps to keep it liquid tight, which is why we have we can mill it in this quarter sawn fashion. Whereas French oak doesn't have this tyloses, which I don't. Andrew, you can probably explain it better, but I say it's kind of like. Like on the molecular level, it's like chewing gum in the cells and it plugs up everything so it doesn't leak out. Um, do you want to give that a more technical description, Andrew? No. I, I, well, I mean, essentially, 
that's exactly what it is. You know, trees have these little cells, and that's what they're made up of. And those cells stack up on top of each other, and they make essentially uh, vessels. Um, and on either end of those cells, uh, you have tyloses forming. Now, um, you know, it forms for a variety of different reasons. It could be for, you know, if the tree is having some kind of attack, whether it be like an insect, fungal, bacteria, something like that. Essentially, what happens is uh, that tyloses forms prevents that from being uptook farther up into the tree um but you know the main source of tylosis at least in american oak and i would probably say for french oak as well um would be the transition of the white wood into the heartwood um so that transition period forms a lot of that tylosis do you want to talk about what grain tightness means so we classify all the oak that comes through as extra fine, fine, or coarse grain. And so your extra fine is going to have a, a lot more of those large, early, early growth pores and closer together. Whereas fine grain, they're a little more spread out and coarse grain, they're much further. And you think of it as when you're a kid and you cut down a tree and you count the rings, you know, to see how old it is, that's what you're doing. But that ring that you count is early growth, and then the part in between is late growth. Um, and so the extra fine grain has those large large cell formations, and it's much easier for the liquid to get in and access the flavor and come out, uh, particularly when you're looking on the wine side, something like you know a short contact time and cooler temperatures. It is it's you can get more flavor with some extra fine grain. Now, when you're looking at whiskey and you've got, you know, four or five, six years in a rickhouse in very cold temperatures, very hot temperatures, it's going to push that liquid in and pull it back out depending on the temperature. And even on that coarse grain where those pores are very tightly packed, you're going to have the ability to extract the flavor from those just as well. So for... The spirits industry, coarse grain is just fine for the wine industry. That extra fine grain sometimes is is worth seeking and paying a premium for. Um, as far as alternatives, we we purchase all fine grain, so kind of right in the middle there. Um, and because alternatives have so much surface area and and you know side grain and everything else, you're you're going to get the extractives out of that as well. So. That's kind of how grain tightness relates to flavor development. On last week's episode, I, uh, I mentioned a bourbon barrel program that I was involved with years ago in which the beer only had a week or two contact time in the barrel. So last week, I asked our guest uh, why we were able to extract everything we wanted so quickly. Does that surprise you that we were able to get... Um, character out of a barrel in, in that sort of a quick turn and I wonder if that meant that those were extra fine grain um, it, I I would say and Andrew you can tag onto this if you want yeah I'm not surprised and you're really what you're really extracting is the leftover whiskey that's in that barrel right. and coming in and that flavors very quickly so, so that liquid really does want to come in and combine and be part of that beer and it does, you know, since it's coming from the inside of the barrel, it does have some barrel flavor with it. Um, but as far as really true kind of oakiness, you're really getting extremely oaked spirit in your beer very quickly. Yeah. Okay. 
Makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. From a spirit standpoint, doesn't you know surprise me at all. You know, we do a lot of double barreling experiments, and most of our barrels that we design uh, to be double barreled are going to be, you know, between three and six weeks. I think it was a you know kind of a misconception in the industry that you have to double barrel this stuff for six months to a year, um, you know, to get the correct flavor from it. And uh, I think extraction happens, you know, a lot faster um, than people think. Um, so, you know, the, the rest, the maturation part, uh, which, uh, you know, that's a very, very slow process, but the actual initial extraction, um, is, is pretty rapid. And then, you know, if you're using a bourbon barrel, which initially had, you know, very high proof alcohol in there or a high concentration of alcohol in there, and then automatically you're just throwing something with a lower concentration, um, you know, there's still going to be some compounds in there that, that was just didn't like that higher alcohol. So those are also going to come out pretty quickly as well. Right. Um, there's actually there's a there, yeah there's an old technique I think it was uh, cognac where they actually proof down they still do this in very very high end uh, spirits but they actually proof down in the barrel um, you know to get that range of flavors make sure they get all the uh, all the character from that wood hmm. that sounds expensive very. up you know if somebody had two different toast profiles maybe you could tell a slight difference but i don't think it would really translate into big sensory differences just because most of those compounds by the time the beer got to them uh into the barrel would have already been depleted i'm john bryce and you're listening to the master brewers podcast from the master brewers association of the americas Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Brewery Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. From large and small breweries to home brewers, we've provided the beer industry with the best fermentation yeast since 2003. The yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch Fermentus yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentus.com. The Master Brewers calendar is a hot mess, as you might imagine, due to COVID-19. Almost everything in April and May has been postponed or canceled, including the Brewery Packaging Technology course. Definitely check the calendar events at mbaa.com for the latest updates. Here are some events that remain on the calendar as of April 3rd. District Midwest meets at BrewDog June 27th. District Northern California has moved their meeting at Drake's Brewing to July 23rd. The best brewing conference worldwide only happens every four years, and it's happening this August. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. 
The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting in Kerrville is August 7th through the 9th. The Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course begins September 13th in Madison. The District Northwest Fall Meeting is scheduled for October 9th and 10th. The Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course is October 25th through November 6th in Madison. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. talk about seasoning and I assume you don't just want to use a f- use fresh oak without some period of conditioning depending on you know what you're making it is a, a very very important step and you know uh, the minimum that we're going to do is you know somewhere around three to six months uh, I'm not sure exactly what it is for wine barrels um, on, that's on the bourbon side on the oak alternative side we use 18 to 24 months and then on the wine side they're looking closer to 24 months do you cut it into staves before you season it or is that afterwards before yeah that's what i thought and then how about when you talk about seasoning is that always just an air drying process or is there any heated drying or how does that work so it's done out in the yard and you really do want all the seasons to hit it. You want it to have, you know, a winter, a summer, um, you, you want it to freeze, get rain, um, all those things, uh, and have fungi growing on it and, and molecular breakdown. What you're, what you're creating is very, very slow, slow molecular breakdown. Um, now, before we bring it in for processing, everything's going to go into the kiln, but that's not so much, you know, anything that has to do with seasoning as it is to make sure that everything's at the right humidity before we start processing it. Because if it's, you know, too much moisture in it, it's not, it's not going to do like, like we're predicting. So we want to make sure we're starting from the same, from the same point with everything we bring in for consistency and for you know, going through the saws and all of that, you, you want your moisture content to be the same. You know, as you add intensity or more seasoning to oak, uh, so intensity of toasting, I believe, uh, you start taking away branches and flavors um, of the chemical makeup of the wood and then also some of those profiles that you're looking for. So, you know, you'll see different levels of, of time for seasoning, um, but the thing is, the longer you're seasoning that piece of wood, you're also diminishing a lot of that profile. And I get a lot of people ask me, oh, well, I want, you know, 36 or 48 month air seasoned oak. And I kind of just like, well, why? <laughs> to me, air seasoning, you know, some places say it needs to be 36 months. Well, maybe it does, depending on your climate. If you're not having extreme climate variants, then it might need 36 months of air drying. Uh, in the Midwest, we've done some tests and and looked at what kind of flavors you get. And it takes, you know, the air the air seasoning takes a lot of harshness and, and sort of acrid, bad, you know, negative flavors out of the oak. Um, but to Noah's point, 
there's a there's kind of a peak and a decline and you can season so long that you actually don't have flavor left to play with when you bring it in to toast it so for us in the midwest on on the wine side we definitely feel like 24 months is about all you'd need um 18 months does a pretty good job you need to to probably have uh distinctly two seasons with that you know two two winters with that um but yes you can over season i imagine not unlike the malting process that toasting has a dramatic impact on flavor talk about how that process works and what it gets us toasting has the biggest influence and the most significant impact on the flavor profile um, than anything that we do in this whole process. Um, and that's because it, it does what we talked about earlier. It's, it's where we add the flame to, to make the caramel and to make the vanilla and all those array of flavors, um, the spices. And this is the part that's kind of exciting to me personally, because I like, I like the different flavors and I like tasting through and, and you start with the same base, spirit, beer, beverage, wine, and you add different oak and it completely makes the flavor 100% different. Um, so yeah, you add that heat and, and there's a time temperature variation where you start with tannin destruction and hemicellulose breakdown and then you start that lignin degradation and then it starts to produce the, the, vanilla, the, the vanilla um, and then you start getting into your phenols and your smokes and at the end you have lactone destruction and you can keep this going and you end up with basically a carbon filter ash um and and nothing so you can you can toast it until you toast toast everything out of it but i i just find it fascinating that you know you take the temperature up and down or or apply it in a different way for example you could do a convection oven you could do a, f a fire toast you can do infrared um and they're all going to create different flavors and we we put different time and temperature parameters on that and it completely changes the flavor um so we we do and create different toasts and then and then we do the chemical markers you know we test to see what we're coming coming up with five methyl furfural furfural vanillin you know your guaiacol your translactone cislactones to name a few and we know that there are certain aromas and taste profiles that go in specifically with those chemical compounds um, we we've gone through several phases where everything was you know, chemical analysis, um, but we realize now that sensory analysis is just as important. Those those chemical compounds tell us what should be there, but sometimes in a sensory analysis, it's just not. Um, so it takes both. So I go to these trade shows and I and I have samples sitting out and someone will come up and inevitably say, oh, I want one that's been toasted a really long time and super dark. And it's interesting because one of our longest toasts that we have is one of our lightest toasts. It looks like it looks like it's barely toasted, and yet it's been in the oven for 24 hours, and that's how we get that great flavor development. So when you look at the color of the oak, you really have no idea how it's been toasted and what kind of flavor profile you're going to get out of that. Um, you know, for example, someone will say, "I want this really heavy dark toast." Well, you can create that in five minutes. And it's going to taste like 
very little. You can create you can create that in, you know, four hours. You can create that in ten hours. It just depends on the temperature of of your heat element. It depends on the type of heat you're using. You know, is it a fire? Is it a infrared toaster, a convection oven? Um, so so I think it's important that people understand that looking at the color of the oak is not going to give you any clue as to what it tastes like and that you could pull you could pull something that is a really dark toast from one manufacturer and compare it to another and they're going to taste completely different because there was a different recipe that went in behind it. Um so so color has has absolutely is not an indicator at all as to what kind of flavor you're going to get. How about giving us some examples of a few different toast profiles? So essentially, you know, when we design these toasts, I mean, you know, we've, we're looking at, for the most part, I mean, you know, hemicellulose, it does give you, you know, some different flavors. And we do target that degradation of that, that, uh, uh, that polymer for some, I mean, basically, you know, high caramel, high toast. I mean, those are the kind of characters are going to come from hemicellulose. But, uh, you know, a lot of the work that I do, um, in spirits at least, is centered around um, lignin degradation chain. So, you know, we'll use high vanilla for an example. Um, when lignin starts to degrade, and it's not quite as black and white as this. So, for instance, what I mean by that is, you know, first lignin will do, you know, vanillin, then it'll go to eugenol, then smoke. I mean, that is true to a certain extent, but you can have vanillin and still get eugenol. Uh, you can have smoke and still get some eugenol as well. So essentially what we do is we know exactly what temperatures produce the highest concentrations of those compounds. So, um, you know, when we have a toast like high vanilla, it's essentially one time, one temperature, and that time is a super long time. It basically develops that compound in higher concentrations through the depth of that state. Um, you know, we have infrared toast, uh, which, you know, compared to these convection oven toasts are quite short. Um, you know, convection oven toasts can go up to, as Amy said, up to 24 hours. The infrared toasts, um, they are pretty intense uh, and they're pretty short. Um, so, again, what that does, uh, it gives you some of the hotter characters on the darker characters on the top of the stay. But then underneath it, it produces a nice gradient. Right. So you have a lot of different flavors kind of built in. And then like we have a we have a stave called high mocha and that is a toast that's it's it's short and high temperature for one part of it, but then in another part we can we take it to a more moderate temperature and, and change that up. So you know, we're not stuck in one temperature for you know one temperature and one time parameter. Those are not the only things. We can move that temperature up and down. Um we can do different things like a double toast where you're going to infrared toast and convection toast. Um, so stacking of flavors in that way, um, there's really no limit to it. And there's a lot of science behind, like Andrew said, knowing which temperature and time is going to give you which profile. Um, but then there's a lot of finessing when you go in and say, okay, I want to target the flavor caramel. You know, that's complex and it takes a while to to actually narrow that down we, we kind of know a starting point okay we think at this time and this temperature it's going to do this and you play with it a while and hone it down until you until you get the recipe that is is giving the results that you're looking for you know i think if you take the time to look and understand you know flavor development that comes 
you know, from Oak Alternatives and, you know, recognize that the science does hold true, you can start to tailor whatever you're putting into those barrels in a very, very specific manner. Um, you know, from Oak, there's a lot of different compounds. There's a lot of different possibilities. Um, and we've studied those possibilities for the past 15 to 20 years. And we've kind of developed, um, you know, a playbook, so to speak. So if somebody says, hey, you know, we've got this idea for a beer. We want to give it a nice vanilla character. You know, we want to do this. We can go, well, actually, you know, we've shown that. Uh, you know, if you do if you do X instead of Y or Y instead of X, you can get a higher vanillin content, um, you know, in that alternative. Um, so there is a right way to do things. Um, there is a wrong way to do things. And, you know, it just depends on kind of understanding the science and understanding the development of these flavor molecules or flavor compounds within the oak wood. Is there any kind of um, universal marking system of that indicates what the level of a toast and, and or seasoning is for a given barrel? So, like, I'm just thinking about brewers who are maybe purchasing, you know, used spirit barrels and, and want to understand what exactly it is they're working with. Is there a magic decoder ring for them to use, or are they kind of relying on information from whoever they get it from? Yeah, so, I mean, when it comes to spirit barrels, you know, the majority are obviously going to be a char number three to number four. Uh, there are toasted barrels out there, but um, as far as like the major brands that are out there that have them, you know, like Woodford Reserve, Double Oak, Jim Beam, Double Oak, uh, those ones <clears throat> are going to be the toast and then charred. And then as far as the coating on the barrel, no. Uh, traditionally, you don't see it unless it just depends on the cooperage and how they mark the barrels. But a lot of the times people, and correct me if I'm wrong, Amy or Andrew, but I think a lot of people sometimes don't want folks to know what their level of toast or char is because there's others out there that sometimes try to replicate profile. I think that's on a very small scale, but um, it, but in particular, uh, as far as whiskey or bourbon barrels go, no, it's not really ever defined on the barrel. You just have to kind of know the product understand and, and really know the producer and work closely with some of these producers um, to understand their processes. You're not necessarily giving away their secret if you're telling somebody has a toasted barrel or anything, but um, to define the, the, the level, uh, usually you might see like a number three or a number four on the barrel. Uh, but I know on some of the ISC barrels, it might have uh, some definition on there. But particularly with wine barrels, you can usually tell because it'll say a, it'll have a letter M and then a plus, or it will just say medium plus, or it will say uh, just medium or heavy toast or something along those lines. So, just to expand on that a little bit further, you know, in terms of and you know barrels go and barrel aging, you know, like I said before, the extraction process, um, at least the extractives from a cooper standpoint. And what I mean by that is the ones that we create through toasting char and there's extractives being created inside the barrel, but there's, you know, also due to other processes like ethanolysis and hydrolysis and that kind of stuff. But, you know, from the, from the, from the concept of just toasting or charring, you know, the spirit's going to be in that barrel for, you know, I would say on average, at least four years. Um, you know, by the time that time is, or, you know, by the time that's passed, most of these extractives that you would get from a toast profile um, are going to be depleted. So I'm not really sure exactly how much influence that has coming over into the into the barrel-aged beer world. Um, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think you could really 
you know, somebody had two different toast profiles, maybe you could tell a slight difference, but I don't think it would really translate into big sensory differences just because most of those compounds, by the time the beer got to them, uh, into the barrel would have already been depleted. Yeah, I agree with that. And then the other thing is, you know, the type of beer that's going into that barrel, that kind of plays a role into the profiles you're also going to get, I think, in my my opinion. And that's why I'm such a big believer in the oak alternatives for beer is just because, you know, I think the longer you age beer, I think you you create some complications. Um, You know, the oak alternative is just straight, you know, virgin oak flavor, and you can get really really specific you know with a with a you know a char four you know barrel or char three barrel i mean you kind of take what you get right maybe you can carve it out and retoast it or something like that but the oak alternatives gives you the exact same barrel flavors um as the barrel would um it's just a little bit more efficient a little bit more precise and when you say alternatives you're talking about like the chips and the other products that are that are made from barrels but that aren't barrels right Right, correct. Okay. Which brings us to the question, why is it called oak alternatives? It's not an alternative to oak. It should Still be oak, called a right? barrel. <laughs> it should be called a barrel alternative. That's right, that's right. But I can't go back and rename what the industry has has deemed it to be. Fair enough, fair enough. I don't know if we and maybe this this really kind of touches on sort of some of what you just said, but um, you know, we hear about sort of the positive oxidative effects in barrel aging. Uh, which is a, a little counterintuitive since brewers are trained to hunt down and eliminate oxygen pretty much everywhere else in their process. Do you want to talk at all about the oxidative uh, oxidation in, in barrel-aged beer? I mean, I can talk to you about the oxidative properties of barrels and how it, um, you know, I guess how that barrel makes a conducive environment for that. Um, you know, as far as the oxidation, you know, what's going on inside the beer, the interaction of oxygen with beer, I don't think I'm the best person to speak on that. But I mean, yes, uh, a used bourbon barrel definitely does provide you a vessel that will provide, um, you know, that oxygen, that oxygenation, right? I mean, you know, about 65% uh, of the oxygen coming in uh, to barrel aged spirits is going to be right through the joints, right? Those joints are not as tight as everybody thinks they are. They hold liquid, uh, but the oxygen transmission rate is quite high there. Um, so you will get some of that oxygen coming in and you will have interactions. Um, but I'm not really sure how much I can speak to it past that in terms of, you know, what brewers are looking for, what they're not looking for. I can tell you in the spirits world, uh, you know, it's a great thing. A lot of the flavor development processes that happen after, um, the initial extraction period are largely, uh, immensely dependent on the oxygen transmission through the staves to the barrel through the bung. Uh, so in the spirits world, definitely a positive. Uh, but I, you know, I've heard the same thing for the beer. It's just maybe not so great on the beer side. That's interesting. Well, do you see uh, a larger demand in the Oak alternative products uh, for that reason? I wonder, you know, fr- from brewers or, or have you not experienced that? I'm starting to see a lot more people look at it and question it and, and answer that question with, huh, this is a lot easier. Uh, maybe I'll look at it a little more in depth. And, and I think people are starting to have some success with it and, and realize that it, it is quite effective and quite clean and quite easy to use. So um, there, there has been an increase recently. And, in my opinion. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd love to see some, maybe some trials, get some brewers to, you know, do some aging uh, in a barrel versus, uh, you know, uh, an alternative and 
and see, uh, do some sensory on it and see what the differences really are. I'm sure somebody out there has done that. I would, um, you know, I would be interested in that myself. I mean, you know, it's two totally different types of flavor development. I mean, with the barrel alternatives, I mean, you're strictly getting really nice, clean, precise oak flavor with, um, you know, the barrel, the used barrels. I mean, yeah, you're going to get some tannins, some lactones and stuff like that, some leftover vanillin. Uh, but, you know, I think a large contributor to that, or I know a large contributor of whatever was held in the barrel previously, uh, which is not something obviously you're going to get with the, the barrel alternative side, but it, it is two different types of flavor development. You know, I think one of the cool things, you know, about alternatives and it kind of offers a little bit different direction than, than barrel aging is that, and again, you know, I'm not a beer expert by any means, but you know, from what I can imagine is, you know, if somebody's going to make a barrel aged beer, they're going to say, okay, well, we're going to brew this beer. That's going to have to, you know, complement this barrel because the barrel is essentially, I mean, that is what it is, right? You, I mean, you can do some stuff to it if you go about it, but a used bourbon barrel is essentially a used bourbon barrel, but with alternatives, you can say, okay, how can I create these alternatives to complement this mash bill? So it kind of works the other way around, which I think provides a lot of room for a lot of innovation and a lot of new flavor possibilities. And I'm kind of excited and hopefully, and, and I'm hoping that, you know, th- this beering the beer world kind of gets to the point that the spirits world has now. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of these distiller guys, they've, you know, we've got out there, we've taught them the material, we've taught them the science, and they're developing their own toasts uh, and they're developing their own barrels from the ground up to fit very, very specific spirits. Uh, that makes my, you know, really, really fun. And I think it provides, you know, customers a lot of new flavors, a lot of new products. And I think it just, you know, overall raises the water for everybody. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that's the direction it kind of heads just because it just, I think it just leads to better products for everybody. That was Amy LaHue, Andrew Wiebrink, and Noah Steingraber here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you enjoyed this interview, check out the Oak 101 presentation they gave at District Michigan. Look for a link in the show notes. Have you figured out which brewing conferences you'll be attending this year? There's one that should be your top priority. Like the Olympics, it only happens every four years, and it attracts the best minds in brewing from across the globe. The World Brewing Congress is hosted by ASBC and Master Brewers in collaboration with the Brewery Convention of Japan, the European Brewery Convention, and the UK's Institute of Brewing and Distilling. It's hands down my favorite brewing conference and is packed with the best technical presentations, posters, and networking you will ever experience. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you should be there. WBC 2020 will be held August 1st through the 4th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find all the details at worldbrewingcongress.org or just follow the link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Fermentis. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stop.